0: Welcome to the Be Good podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BVA Nudge Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science. Each month, we speak with a leader in the field and get to know more about them and their work. My name is Scott Young of the BVA Nudge Unit's UK team, broadcasting to you from my basement in West London. And with me is my colleague
2: Ted Yutoff. Thanks, Scott. So I'm really happy to be here and uh, happy to speak with our guest today, who is Paul Dolan. And. Paul is the Professor and Head of Department of the Behavioral Science and Psychological and Behavioral Science at the London School of Economics and Political Science. He's the Director of the Executive Master's Program in Behavioral Science at the LSE, which began in September 2014. Paul conducts research on the measurement of happiness, its causes and consequences, and the implications for public policy, publishing in both scholarly and popular outlets. He's the author of two popular press books on the subject, Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. Welcome, Paul.
0: Hello, thank you very much for having me on.
2: Thanks so much. So, Paul, let's let's kind of go back a little bit and let's talk about how did you originally come to kind of economics as your field of study? And and I think it had something to do around health outcomes, is that right?
0: It is, yeah. You're making me feel very old now, because that feels like a long time ago. It actually was a long time ago. But um so we're all very good at being able to construct narratives after the fact that make our lives cohere, but I'm not sure there's any <laughs> truth in that for me. I just kind of randomly um uh stumbled upon doing economics at university I, I i then uh did chartered accountancy of all things for a year um and after about two weeks of doing that realized that that wasn't for me and then went back to school and i so 've sort of been in university uh, ever since and yeah i did i did a, I did a master's at York University and they have a very big center for health economics there they did then they still do so I sort of got sucked into health economics and had a, my first academic appointment at the University of York. And I was involved in trying to value health outcomes. So when we're thinking about where to spend scarce healthcare resources, we could try and do it in a way that maximised benefits. So we were looking at ways in which we value benefits. Um, and I was uh, lucky enough to be in at the early days of quality adjusted life years, qualies, which are which have now been used quite widely by uh, institutes like Nice and stuff to value benefits of healthcare, so that. As I say, we could try and use the healthcare resources as wisely as possible.
2: And Paul, what drove you towards, you know, what we're now calling behavioral economics as opposed to more classic economics? Was there any kind of person or literature or experiment that got you thinking about economics in a different way?
0: Interesting. So I suppose when I was at York, my mentor was Alan Williams, a professor of health economics there. And uh, so we did a lot of, lot of that work on valuation, and also um, some stuff around equity preferences. You know, people's views around fairness in health, which we might pick up on again uh, later, perhaps. But um, I did a lot of that quality work, and basically, what we do, without sort of going into this in too much detail, is we ask people questions about their trade-offs of quality of life over quantity of life. So basically, you know, whether you'd like to to live longer in poorer health states or have a shorter period of time in better health and those trade-offs require people to imagine what it's like to be in a whole range of uh, health outcomes having problems walking about being anxious and depressed and so on and it struck me because i wasn't the first person to realize this that actually people's projections of their future utility or well-being are uh, not often accurate guides to those subsequent experiences and um serendipitously I, I went this is kind of we're now moving forward quite a few years I guess we're now like 2004 2002 maybe a little bit, bit before yeah about 2002 um, I went I was I went to a conference in um, Milan I, I just won a prize in health economics in the UK and it sort of bought out some teaching time and some money and so I went to this I went to this conference um happiness in Milan so I went over to that and Danny Kahneman was there and he had just I think pretty much that year won the Nobel prize. It wasn't very much after just won it. And again, you know, luck plays a massive part in, in a lot of what happens to us in life. Um, I sat next to him on a bus ride or something to the conference dinner. Sorry, and we were just chatting for 20 minutes or so. And, and uh, he he was interested in this whole quality stuff. So I went out to print. So he invited me to go to Princeton, which I immediately obviously jumped to the chance to do that. And then went and spent some time with him out there. And that got me more interested in the behavioral science aspects, I suppose, and just how, well, I suppose, in a nutshell, often we're not very good at being able to project and predict how future consequences will play out for our experiences. And that, that sort of led me to to rethink how I thought about benefit valuation in health and in public policy more generally. And then, I suppose, more broadly than that, generated an interest in behavioral science and and just how the lessons from essentially the interface of economics and psychology could be drawn into um, designing better environments both in the workplace and in public policy and 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 actually then in our personal lives too.
1: Paul, can you speak a little bit about how you see behavioral science specifically contributing to happiness as opposed to other fields such as psychology?
0: Yeah, I suppose that begs the question of what is behavioral science, doesn't it? I, uh, it was kind of not a discipline sort of in and of itself. I think it draws on and in different disciplines, principally that's been economics and psychology. Although I think that is changing, will change as other social scientists, you know, who are doing behavioral work, but not under the same label, perhaps, um, uh, uh, that we start collaborating more closely with sociologists and anthropologists. And then also i guess i suppose data scientists as you know people are so interested in the use of big um, data and so on so i think it's a, a coalition i suppose or a collaboration of different disciplines um, and i think what because an economist as you know the standard neoclassical model is that we are essentially very good futurians we can predict our utility flows very well and precisely we have very clear defined preferences um, and we seek to maximize those subjects of constraint. Well, of course, <laughs> we also know that, that we're not like that. Um, and you know, and to some sense a bit that's set up as a bit of a kind of straw man, but you know we, we we are subject to a range of biases and heuristics, and of course, many of which Kahneman and Tversky and others have written about. So I think in understanding how we should live our own lives and prescribe how others or to live their lives, we need to draw much more directly on the experiences that people have in their lives, moment to moment, rather than trying to base any policy decisions to some large extent on how people imagine things being. And that sort of takes me back to that health economics valuation stuff. I became, um, you know, kind of disillusioned, I suppose, to some large extent in our abilities to be able to predict how different health states would affect us in the fullness of time. I think the big issue is not so much. Our our misprediction of how things will impact upon us in the first few minutes or hours, but it's the days, weeks, months, and years that we are not very good at being able to forecast. And for most of the things that life throws at us, we quickly get used to them. You know, we imagine good and bad things. You can take a, you know, pay rise or, para, you know, I'll say that again. Um, most of the things that life throws at us, we get used to, Quickly and certainly much more quickly than we would predict. You can take sort of very good things and very bad things in extreme, you know, massive pay rise through to paraplegia. And both of those things will become less good and less bad um, quite quickly because of our attention being drawn away from those changes towards other things. And we're not very good at being able to predict the shift in attention. Some things actually draw more attention to themselves. So in the health valuation stuff, we we find that people will give physical functioning conditions and mental health problems, you know, broadly similar weightings. We'll get used to the physical health problems to some large extent, but we don't get used to mental health problems. But so by by its very nature, having depression, anxiety, are attention seeking conditions. They don't. They're not any less bad after three hundred and sixty five days than they were after one day. Um, and so, I think we are we if we're thinking about allocating healthcare resources to where they're going to do the most good, we would be shifting resources away from physical functioning conditions um, and towards mental health problems. And um, that's not what people's imaginations of those conditions suggest.
2: And speaking of people's imaginations, Paul, the the subtitle of one of your books is Escaping the Myth of a Perfect Life. I want you to explain that for us a little bit. Apart from you know, breaking my dreams. Tell me what, what do you mean by escaping the myth of a perfect life?
0: Yeah, so that just to clarify, that's the subtitle of the hardback of Happy Ever After. Um, subtitle of the paperback, I think, is uh, a radical new approach to living well. Um, you know what these publishers are like. They want to... Uh, of course. Uh, try and, They're uh, on in
2: your work. <laughs> extract as much
0: surplus out of it. No, I'm totally aligned with their interest, by the way. Um, so, so I think this is... One of the things that I've, I suppose, I don't know, long been interested in, it's hard to, hard to imagine a time when I wasn't, is in how so many people appear to be living their lives in stories about how they ought to be living, um, you know, to be successful, to be clever, to, 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 to earn lots of money, maybe to get married, to have children. Um, and it's never been entirely clear to me that that's good for them. I mean, it's probably good for some people some of the time, <laughs> but not not good for all of us all of the time, and certainly not to the extent to which people kind of desire those things. It's sort of again, it speaks to this miswanting—that's a term that Gilbert and Wilson have used—but this idea that we sort of often want things that are not good for us, and vice versa, and uh, not being able to predict. And so, kind of interested in in how people have been, in some instances, kind of almost compelled to be driven by these achievements attainments you know sort of ticking off things on a list because that's what they ought to do and not necessarily or even because it's going to make them happier so I was, in, I was interested in exploring some of the evidence if there was any out there that would speak to the impact of those narratives on happiness but i think beyond that i mean i've always been interested and this is certainly goes back for a very very long time about how much people care about how other people live like disproportionately, it seems to me, to the impact that it that it ought to be having on their own welfare. Um, you know, why would why why do people care so much about people that have an alternative lifestyle, for example? Just Let them get on with it. So I just wanted to sort of explore that a bit more fully, explore some of the reasons why we might uh, feel like that, um, and to use it, I suppose, as a as a. Uh, If you look at any therapy at the individual level, pretty much any form of therapy starts with acceptance. And so this was more for me a kind of almost like a acceptance, not just on an individual level, but on a societal level that sometimes, and to some large extent, we might be trapped in these narratives, in these myths um, of what the perfect life should look like, not only or even because it's going to make us happier, but because that's what's expected of us by society, by our parents, by historical accident, by evolution, by whatever... Reasons, but we were just kind of many of us living in these stories that actually weren't good for us. Um, and so, when you when you look at some of those narratives, if you take, for example, the uh, ones around reaching, that I call them in the book, the success and the income and the education, is not surprising that the evidence, insofar as we can draw causal inference uh, from these data, which is often problem, problematic, but insofar as we can, is that you know poverty um and you know low social standing and no education actually does make people miserable um unsurprisingly and so to be driven and motivated individually and societally for getting more is actually good for you it's just that we just become addicted and then we just kind of it is like an it is like an addiction problem we just want more and more and more and more way past the point at which it's good for us either individually or societally so um one of the lessons from the first part of of the book is actually just to chill out a little bit
2: I think you've you've probably you've probably seen Daniel Kahneman's oftentimes asked if there was one heuristic or bias that that um he could do away with that he thinks would serve us all well and he he's oftentimes quoted as saying overconfidence. Is there one of these myths, Paul, that you think if we could if we could overcome it, it would serve us all to the maximum?
0: Oh, that's a super question. Um it's I think it does it might it must relate to the judgment piece i mean judgment of others piece i mean i think that that is that is interesting you know that um you know uh, why why people care so much So, so for example why you know when i when i when i said when i've said that some of the evidence shows that you know single people particularly single women who haven't had children you know they're Again, we've got no randomized controlled trials, so we can't, it's hard to make calls and inference. But they're just doing absolutely fine. You know, they're not sad and lonely and miserable. <laughs> but but the but the narrative says that they ought to be, and that they get judged very harshly um for being single and not having kids. It's like what, what who cares? You know, the world's still gonna be turning, people are still gonna be large great swathes of people are gonna be wanting to marry and have kids. All that will happen if we're more accepting of those that don't is that we'll be more accepting of those that don't, um, and and so I think it's that inability for us to adopt someone else's perspective. I think that's the really and I and that actually is interesting because that plays into behavioural science in policy as well. By the way, right? So we imagine we look at somebody who's living a particular life or lifestyle, and we apply our own rules and our own insights and our own experiences to judging how their lives will be better if only they were essentially more like us that's that's i mean that really what we what we think even though we might not explicitly say that out loud so so often is that actually if only people could become more like us they'd be better off well actually there's a lot of heterogeneity out there and they might not be and they're facing different constraints and they have different preferences and um so i think whilst it took me a little while to get into your question, I think I'm becoming increasingly confident in the answer because I think it applies <laughs> so like like a stream of consciousness always leads me to 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 what i think i never i never know what i'm thinking until, until I hear myself say it out loud and I think that judgment piece it's the it's the it's the it's the perspective issue and I think it's going to play through into uh, the later part of our conversation as well, I think, if we start talking about issues relating to the current situation, for example, which I'm sure we're going to necessarily have to at some point, um, that, 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 that there are, you know, it's very, very difficult for us to adopt the perspective of somebody else. It's very hard to to walk in someone else's shoes when they don't wear the same, when they, when they it's, it's very hard for us to walk in someone else's shoes when they don't have the same size feet
2: as i said once to a friend who has quite different political leanings than i do said if they could just pull themselves up by the bootstraps and i said some people don't even have feet <laughs> but yeah. yeah this idea that yeah. yeah there's this idea like if you can't yeah why can't you do do as i'm doing or work as hard as i'm working etc um well speaking of that it, this idea of of judgment and you know part of part of what we do at the BBA nudge Unit is, is creating nudges to change people's behaviors I mean just spitballing here for the for the sake of it, what do you think is a a thing or two that we could do to ourselves to nudge ourselves or nudge our family or nudge our colleagues to to release ourselves from some of that kind of judgment and that that presupposing um, of others that allows us to see the ways in which people maybe their working styles or their parenting styles or their socializing styles are, are something that we can we can adapt to and and take on and and release ourselves from that judgment
0: well so there's a couple of layers. There's a few layers to that thing. So, I mean, first of all, one of the things that I'm that I've been particularly interested in, given the interest in both in happiness, well-being measurement and, and impact, whatever you ever might call that, and behavioural science, is to bring those two worlds together more closely. Because obviously, different researchers using different research methods. Typically, you know, the happiness economists are doing regression equations from existing data. Um, trying to make causal inference from data that uh, haven't been gathered to be causal and then you've got the behavioral scientists who are doing lots of randomized controlled trials typically on much smaller samples um and make and being able to make causal inference but not but not looking at the welfare the well-being impacts very rarely of, of their intervention so i think there's a lot to be said which will free us of the judgment by well not free us of the judgment we'll make the judgment we're going to have those judgments but but make those judgments less um I don't know, biased or personal by actually observing the welfare consequences of our nudges, um, you know, directly, not not just on the behaviors that we think people ought to be engaging in, but on the subsequent well-being that they experience from changing their behavior. Um, and there has been some work, there has been some work looking at the welfare effects of nudges, you'll be familiar with some of that literature, um, but there needs to be, there needs to be much more of it, um, um, you know, direct inquiry into the w- welfare consequences of Nudging people in particular ways. I think um, in the design of the nudges, um, there needs to be a broader range of perspectives around the table. I think um, often it will be, you know, look, it's going to be, it's really, if you think about, if you think about a lot of the nudges in health, and i have kind of want to want to start exploring some of this a bit more fully in some of my future academic work. I think, I think, yeah, you look, know, if you look and think about what we're trying to get people to do to do with their lives and lifestyle and health behaviours, is Sort of essentially is to is to make more people middle class. I mean that that that's really what we want. We want we're middle class people designing interventions to nudge behaviours in more of a middle class direction. Um, and it'd be interesting to see whether some of the resistance in populations that we see for nudges working is because the nudges haven't been designed effectively or whatever, or actually it's just that people are resistant and they and they have a different set of underlying preferences. Um. And so I'd be I'd be I'd be interested in exploring that further, and that will that will help us speak more directly to this judgment piece. Sorry, does that help? I I can't even remember the question now.
2: No, that's perfect. No, it was about finding ways for people to kind of release themselves from that judgment, or or nudging people away from that kind of default to to judge. No, I think it was fine.
0: Yeah, well, I do think there's a sense in which we want to create. It's as much about creating environments in our lives as it in our work lives um and in our organizations and institutions as it is within ourselves personally or for ourselves so you know diversity of opinion is what's really critical in organizations um diversity of characteristic is important and of course we're doing a lot on that and that's more measurable and quantifiable but diversity of opinion you know if you take academia you you mentioned earlier about um you're, you're someone you know about. You know people should pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I would love to be able to, if it, if it were possible. Of course, there's all sorts of ethical reasons why we wouldn't do this, but to sort of get people's political um, allegiances on their CVs <laughs> and, to, <laughs> and to actually, controversial, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but to sort of sample uh, in academia for academic for academia to have more more right wing academics more people that you could argue with and debate with um and different professions then to have obviously more liberals in because you could then have a genuine discussion you know it's a you know they kind of what other people have written about this well it's almost like it's a adversarial collaboration they call it in in, in um, academia is you bring together people to collaborate on trials and studies that have different views and perspectives Um, And then I think you can be more confident that the results are scientific in some sense because we kind of see ourselves as scientists, but we're human beings as well. (laughs) And so we do bring our own. And again, this speaks to answering your judgment question, because I do remember what it is now, um, is that, you know, if we bring together people with different judgments and we're very honest and open about the fact that I'm biased in this way, you're biased in that way, we come together and we collaborate in an adversarial way then I think that we get better, more scientific, if you like, outcomes than by us all having the same beliefs or underlying values and biases and pretending that we're all pure scientists and going into the research question.
1: Paul, one of our areas of focus at BVA Nudge Unit is the idea of bringing behavioral science to the private sector. And tied to this, I was really curious to hear your perceptions of the executive program at LSE, Uh, in particular, what kinds of questions and issues and challenges the students are bringing to you, perhaps after they leave the program and then go into um, both private and public sector work.
0: The great, I mean, I have to say, I mean, teaching all students is is actually genuinely a privilege. But Teaching these executive students is exceptional um, in, in the sense that they and you've sort of touched on it in your question really come from a, a, a wide range of backgrounds um, in business, in the public sector. They're all kind of tend to be sort of a bit bit more senior um, well they are obviously senior because it's an executive program compared to our full-time programs. and so they're able to go out and impact policy and practice directly immediately that was actually the motivation for me setting up that program by the way so i was quite patient i've always been quite patient i didn't want to it's nice teaching younger students who will then go and make an impact in a decade's time it's also nice to be able to teach students who can go and do that immediately so they they come from from a whole range of backgrounds and they'll be sitting in class next to someone who was someone who worked in an ngo and someone who works in an investment bank they would otherwise never meet one another they're sitting next to one another in class um and they're bringing their own Interests and experiences to the program. um, I think it enables them. I think again that comes from the perspective piece. That seems to be a theme that seems to be naturally emerging in this conversation: is having different opinions around the table, and all of those opinions being voiced and aired, and everyone having the environment in which it's safe to speak up um, and to have that diversity of thought. I think that's what. That's what our program is enabling us to do and them to do as a cohort I think um yeah is that different is that different perspectives and they i suppose the one the one thing that they all come with is an enthusiasm and an interest for behavioral science and not and they all even though they've been most of them have you know very high achieving they realize that they don't know it all and I think that what behavioral science teaches us and danny kahneman is a very good representation of this is the humility is that you know we we we're actually all in our own ways affected by a whole range of heuristics and biases all the time and to speak to danny's overconfidence point to believe that you're not and to believe that a bit of training and that you know a master's or a whatever or a successful career can debias bias you of those things is to be rather deluded
1: is that it's sometimes easier for the people making those decisions in government to imply that the decisions are purely scientific, as opposed to what they really are, which is almost inevitably value judgments on some level.
0: Again, a very good question. I think the if there's a natural there's a natural tension between academics and practitioners in the fact that we want, you know, all this evidence to be causal and done under randomized controlled conditions. And of course, that's just not always possible. <laughs> it's rarely possible in an organization. So so they're kind of having to learn not learn, they sort to of do some of this anyway, but sort of how, you know, what, what good evidence looks like when it's not possible to gather the gold standard evidence. And and can they actually draw any good conclusions from data that might be a bit dirty and messy. Um, and I guess that's a kind of lesson for us as well, by the way. I mean, we, it's not like we, you know, as, as, as academics, we're sort of fishing our way through, muddling our way through, sort of working out what we can take as being good evidence uh, and, and not. And leaving on one side the whole replication crisis in psychology, which of course is a massive problem. But just whether you can sort of find something that seems to work in an organisation and, on whether that's generalizable to another business unit or another part of the company or somewhere else. That's I think that's the a challenge. I don't have I don't I think that's an important question to change. I don't I don't I don't have an answer to it. Um, I just think that's what we're kind of grappling with is what good evidence looks like. Does that does that resonate with you?
1: Earlier, you mentioned the issue of reaching, and there's obviously direct implications for individuals as they think about their careers and being happy in their careers. But I was also curious to look at it from the managerial side and ask what might organizations or um, managers do to promote happiness in their organization? Do you feel that your work has application from that managerial or organizational perspective?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the the first thing is, I suppose, that we're now taking, we, I think, collectively, um, companies are taking well-being and happiness more seriously, um, not just because it's been shown to be causally related to all the things that companies would care about, like productivity and, you know, less absenteeism and healthier workforces and so on, but also because it's an important consequence in itself. And I think companies are... Increasingly, I don't think this this is entirely cheap talk. I mean, there's a little bit of cheap cheap talk in there, but I do think there is some genuine desire on the part of organisations to improve worker wellbeing because they care about worker wellbeing. Um, and and so, from a manager's perspective, it's not just about the productivity of the worker improving; um, it's about a relationship that they have with the employee that you know is, is a good one because the employee is feeling good. Um, and there are simple things that organizations can do you know feedback is absolutely critical timely and salient feedback is paramount if you we, we're not very good at doing that in organizations you know if, if someone's i don't know been a few weeks working on a project or something and then that project gets cancelled that, that's the time to step in and say to that employee look i appreciate that the, the, this work hasn't led to where we thought it might be going the work's still valuable we'll be able to draw it down at some other time that that intervention just simply very authentic thank you at that point has huge effects on that employee. Um, in, in the early work of, the day, uh, of using the day reconstruction method that Kahneman and others did uh, uh, around the time that I met him in Princeton, actually, um, that was published in Science, they showed that time spent with your boss was one of the least pleasurable activities that people could be in. And, um, you know, Richard Layard has also made this point. That's a pretty, that's a pretty sad indictment of management, isn't it, really? you know people are happier basically when they don't have to see their boss than when they do is that we we should be kind of thinking about what it is in that interaction that makes that so stressful for the employee um but in terms of the reaching narratives i think it's like uh, I've, i've got a phd student now an older phd student who was a senior partner in one of the consultancies and he He's left to do a PhD, and he's looking at he's looking at the dark triad, uh, which is uh, was it psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and narcissism, um, uh, 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 as because um, <laughs> you see quite a lot of that in the uh, well in the world generally, but maybe 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 concentrated more in uh, senior management in some in some firms. Is um, is looking at uh, what impact that has on progression of people that aren't playing the game in, in, in the same ways. Um, and I do think there's a, an opportunity for, you know, it's like, like not, everybody, not everybody wants to be a partner. And you can have some very, very good employees who will be very good at their job at a particular level. And they don't need to be reaching for more. We shouldn't be expecting them to. And it's not good for the organization, actually, if we expect everybody to either get promoted or leave. Because actually, you could have people that are very, very good employees in a particular position for a very, very long time. So I think breaking that narrative in direct answer to your question amongst the managers will actually lead to not only a happier workforce, but I think a more...
1: One issue that we're looking at right now, of course, is the reopening of society. And, and a question I have for you is, as people start returning to offices and businesses start opening in one form or another. Uh, what's our role as a behavioral science community in terms of uh, promoting positive behaviors and or perhaps reassuring people? Uh, Is there a constructive role that we can play as this process starts to unfold?
0: Yeah, interesting. Of course it's interesting and it's impossible to have this conversation without discussing COVID-19. I think, I mean, picking up this theme of perspectives, I think differences of opinion and perspective in the decision making process are vital at any time for any particular decision, but my God, especially now um, and so it worries it concerns me a little bit that we're talking a lot about we're saying this a lot in the uk it's probably I this' is probably true elsewhere is that what we do is going to be guided by the science that's that's you, you we 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 hear that a lot um and what that means really is the science of infection control. It's the science of virus transmission. It's epidemiological science. And now, even if, even if the epidemiological science were, were resolved, if the evidence were clear, which, of course, it's not, actually. It's a huge amount of uncertainty around the virus, generally um so so the 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 science of virus transmission is very uncertain. But even if it were certain, the science of virus transmission is only one very small part of the decisions that are being made by policymakers to um, restrict freedom of movement, to physical distancing, to closing schools. And then, of course, now what we might do is open some of those things and what we do next. their scientific judgments to some, Large degree, but they're judgments. I mean, they're they're, they're questions of value, um, and it it I think it concerns me that it doesn't appear to be the case. I mean, look, I'm not close to the decision maker. I'm not close enough to the to the decision making process to know. But it, you know, the the evidence on the impact of schools being closed for the welfare of children, not just educational attainment, but inequalities in outcome, but also children that are in very dysfunctional, problematic households where school was the only, is the only safe place that they go to, the place they get attention, the place that the school will identify if there's any problems at home. Um, you know, they are scientific. They're, they're questions of science, in ter- uh, but they're also questions of value. And so I, I, I would like to be more confident that the decisions that are being made are incorporating a whole range of scientific perspective And then weighting those to form a value judgment about who gains and who loses from the particular policy decisions, that can't ever be determined only by epidemiological
1: data. Yes, that definitely resonates with us. A a very consistent theme in working with organizations is this pull between rigor and expediency. As behavioral scientists we're always looking for depth and rigor. We'd love to run randomized control trials and isolate variables and really understand and document what's working and what isn't. But from the company's perspective they're often just looking for a sense of whether anything is working um, and at least some idea of, of what's driving it. So we're always looking to find that right balance between those two in different situations yeah so
0: a couple of things first of all i just on a just more of an observational level i suppose is the is the is the fear you, know, so you think of that as not just an emotion but really significant predictor of subsequent behavior is that any behavioral scientist doing anything post-covid 19 has to be alert to fear and the heterogeneity in the population potentially right so I mean you kind of We've had a policy in the UK of lockdown, which is, you know, we, and the messaging is really to get people to stay at home because, of course, you need to be, you need to be, be scared of this virus, not only for yourself, but for the transmission to others. And um, as we start to release particular population groups or sectors of the economy, we're going to have to sort of start changing some of that messaging to actually don't be quite so afraid. And, and that's, a difficult, that's a difficult thing to do. Once you've, once you've initiated a particular reaction. And, and I imagine that what will happen is that we'll get segmentation. There'll be people who continue to be afraid and very afraid, and then there'll be others who uh, are much less so. So interesting questions of dealing with the heterogeneity in responses. Because like, you know, and even in terms of the lockdown, if you think about the happiness effects or wellbeing effects of the lockdown. The lockdown is one thing, how it's experienced is very, very different from different people. Um, I guess, ironically, is it? I don't know. But paradoxically, we're in a world where you should be phoning up your extrovert friends to make sure that they're okay, because this is a this is a this is an introvert's dream. I mean, this is like we're in a world where, and, and, and I think we're seeing that. I mean, you're probably seeing that in your own own experiences of yourself and others. Is the extroverts are really struggling, and the introverts are loving it. Um, and so, so. There's no such thing as a lockdown that's experienced by everybody in the same way. And I think that when we when we come out of COVID-19, we're going to have heterogeneous reactions. So dealing with that is going to be interesting and important. I do think that as a behavioral scientist, one of the things that we say a lot, I think, is that past behaviors speak to future ones more directly than intentions, for example, ever do. And so, so in the absence of any... Like, so in the moment of crisis now, we'll all say things like, this has changed the world. This is going to be so different. It's all going to be, there's no new, you know, it's going to be a new normal. And actually, unless there's anything significant changing in the environment post um, COVID-19, we're just going to go back to exactly how we were. It's a bit like when people are, are sick and they say, oh, when I'm, when I'm well again, I'm going to remember how good it is to feel healthy. And of course, they're healthy again and they completely forget that they're real. And that's, and that's kind of pretty much what's going to be collectively how we're going to experience this. Is that most things will go back to exactly how they were, even though in a moment of crisis we think things are going to be so different. Um, so some things will be changed. I think I think the the fact that we're now speaking to one another um, on this on this uh, conference call on online will be that will stick to some large degree, right? The face-to-face meetings are going to be much less than they were even when physical distancing measures have been reduced or removed. Um, often, um, companies will realize that they don't need people to go into work every day for the same hours every day. I think that's for, for, for those of us that can work from home, some of those changes will be permanent. Um, but most things won't change unless we design environments now and have conversations and like this about what we want to stick. What the good things that have come out of this might be And how we might continue those beyond um, the resolution of the crisis, because otherwise we're going to look back. We're almost certain to look back on this in five years time and not even remember it in a sense of how we have changed society in any meaningful way.
2: Which, which almost seems like squandering, squandering an opportunity. If, if it's, it, you know, it, I love it. I used to live in Singapore and they're referring to the lockdown instead as a circuit breaker, which I think is a really interesting kind of semantics. As I, because with a circuit breaker, it almost seems like there is also opportunity in it in that it kind of resets something. Um, and I think yeah, as, as behavioral scientists Obviously, we have to use, uh, you know, the tools in our in our toolkit to mitigate um, issues and try to get, you know, economies and 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 families back up and running in normal ways. At the same time, I feel we would be um, squandering an opportunity if we didn't also look at the ways in which it might be potential for you know really creating new behaviors because of this kind of circuit breaking moment
0: i completely agree i completely agree but that but though but those new behaviors need to be embedded when the circuit has been broken yeah um i think we're agreeing on that and and not waiting until the circuit has repaired itself and then wondering why it's repaired itself in the same way as when we
2: all fall (laughs) back into (laughs) buying at pratt and putting our hands all over the rails on the tube yeah
0: (laughs) (laughs) well yeah 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 exactly um but I don't know, is there anything specifically that's interesting? Oh, cause there's so many different things in the current crisis that we could talk about, uh, but is there anything that's particularly interesting or challenging to you? Um, and as you think about that, I suppose, in the corporate sector as, as well as in policy.
1: I think the whole issue of reassurance is a really interesting one. It cuts across just about everything. And as you alluded to before, We've been telling people essentially to be afraid and to stay inside, and now we're going to be telling them to be uh, selectively afraid <laughs> or at least to to use judgment um, about what they do and what they don't do. So a question is, how do we reassure people in a way that doesn't inadvertently uh, scare them more, but really actually helps them make good decisions and also helps them feel comfortable when, when that's appropriate, whether it's going on public transport or booking a hotel room?
0: Yeah, I mean the, the, the you know we we're going to be in a world to some degree of shielding, aren't we? Really, I mean that's what I mean. You know, there are the the mortality risks of COVID are very clearly associated with age and underlying health problems. So, you know, we, we, we're 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 going to sort of the, the the very blunt conclusion is you know shield vulnerable and 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 old, you know and old people and let everybody else go about about their business normally that that's the block but but that how you how you implement that and present that information to people in a way that makes that intelligible is the re is a really difficult challenge i do you know i do think there is i think it's interesting i don't you know people often talk about how we don't understand numbers and we don't you know we're not very good with numeracy and stuff and mortality risk you know standardized mortality rates for you know, populations are going to be wholly impossible for people to really understand fully. But we do get, I think our, our, our numeracy is not as bad as some people make out. You know, we are, you see weather forecasts now where it says things, you know, 20% chance of rain or whatever. And, and people get that. You know, they get that the weather's not certain. Um, and the 20, 20% chance of rain means that it could rain, but it's not. But, it's, but it probably won't. Um and so I you know I am sort of a bit more confident that some people might be in people's ability to understand, for example, in the under forties that the mortality risks of COVID nineteen are very, very, very low. Um, so you know, I'm not yeah, I, I guess I guess the optimist in me believes I mean one thing that, you know, Danny Karnam has mentioned this as well is one thing that we don't understand is exponential growth. That's the problem. And that's that's sort of we just don't understand that we can't com- like our minds can't cope with the fact that if you have one, one person, you know, get a virus now in a week's time, that's however many, you know, 100. I mean, it's kind of like that's a, that's a really difficult thing for us to, uh, to grapple with. Um, but I do think there are, una- that, that there are other numbers that are, that are more manageable for us. And, and, and I think mortality rates by age group might be one of those things that we can get people to understand better than they do at the moment.
1: Paul, I know we're up against it now on time. So first off, I really wanted to thank you so much for spending your time and sharing your thoughts with us and our listeners. And as we wrap up, I also wanted to see if there's anything else that you'd like to share, any topics that we didn't have a chance to speak about.
0: No, I suppose one of the things is thinking about the, um, the reaching narrative again and the status that's afforded to people currently in the situation is that by and large, they're very low paid workers, right? Um, And it's hard to imagine in a new world order where those jobs are going to be significantly more remunerated than they are currently, um, in spite of whatever optimism we might have about that. But they can be afforded the respect that they deserve, which is largely costless from a financial perspective. And I'd like to think of ways in which we might try to embed the memory of the people that have been very important right now. And respecting their the, the, the status of their professions post-COVID-19. It speaks to this reaching narrative, is that you know you can't you can't just be a cleaner. Right? That's not good enough. Well, actually it's fucking good enough. It's really good enough. It's really what we are needing right now. And yeah, it would be good if we could pay them a bit more money. That would all that that would that would that would also be good too, because poverty makes people miserable. But affording people respect and status. I mean, think that's, that's also important. We know that that motivates the human condition. And so I think, I think if we can think of ways beyond this crisis that we, that we do that, I think that would be a good outcome.
1: Yeah, so that, that could be one of the positive outcomes that you were alluding to before, if this crisis really drives us to rethink the issue of status and, and what's really important, and, and maybe rethink respect.
0: Exactly. Exactly, and that ju- you know speaks again. We're sort of returning to that judgment piece, to the perspectives, to you know different values that, that different people and different populations will hold. I think I think behavioral science needs to be uh, respectful of that, um, perhaps a little more than it might have been historically.
2: I wanted to ask you a little bit, Paul, if we have a couple more minutes, just about the the really recently published work um, that you were a part of at the LSE about the government's shift. Um, and I know that's not necessarily explicitly directed towards behavioral science, but the government shift towards kind of um, herd immunity, towards suppression. And what's your view on that? And, and as, you know, practitioners of behavioral science, what can we do with that information to, you know, to help the cause, for lack of a better word?
0: Um, well, I think, I don't know. I think um, maybe you could edit that that question from the from this and, and i'll talk off the record
2: okay that's fine <laughs> that's fair <laughs>
0: don't put this don't put this
2: bit in. <laughs> that's, okay. that's fair enough thanks so much again paul for joining us today and talking about your work is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with perhaps where they could find out more about you or your work
0: oh yeah good thank you that gives me the opportunity to self-publicize i like that um, um paul Dolan got PaulDolan.co.uk, that's my website. Um, of course, everybody should, should have um, bought both books by now anyway, but if they haven't, uh, they, they should buy Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. I don't care whether they read them, just buy them. That's, uh, that's all we care about. No, no, no it would be really nice if they read them as well as bought them. And uh, Twitter, yes, uh, at Prof. Paul Dolan. Thank you very much. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.